0: Last week we were in Ezra seven and we got the backstory for Ezra's journey back to Jerusalem, his return, and he told us how uh, how it came about that the Lord stirred in the heart of the king he was under and allowed him to return. And uh, this week in chapter eight we're going to get a glimpse into Ezra's really his personal journal. Uh, it's been believed that Ezra kept notes and. Uh, Basically wrote a journal and then collated it back together for this uh, this historical document of Ezra and even the book of Nehemiah. Ezra chapter eight is really uh, not so much uh, in the tone of history as it is a tone of really just his personal personal recollection of uh, what they did and what God did, what he did for God and what God did for him. In Ezra 7, we we really finally met Ezra. You remember in the first six chapters of Ezra, although he is the the namesake of the book, uh, he doesn't show up. He gives us the story of the first return of Israel. And then finally in Ezra chapter 7, we meet Ezra. It's his turn to come back. And uh, we get this astounding, do you remember? We get this astounding description of Ezra. And uh, we should all be envious of what's said of him at least, I think, three times in that one chapter that the hand of the Lord. You remember? The hand of the Lord was upon him. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? Who doesn't who doesn't want it to be said about them that the hand of their God is upon them? And it's not just said by his fellow believers. It's said by uh, the king, the pagan king, under which he served. Uh, it, was, it was obvious. It was recognizable. The hand of the Lord was upon him, for sure. Why was this? You remember we asked the question, why is this? How did this come about? I mean, you know. How did he get the hand of the Lord upon him? What was the what was the formula there? And, uh, we looked at verse ten of chapter seven and it said that because Ezra's heart was set on the word of the Lord, God saw fit to put His hand upon Ezra. Ezra's heart on the word of God, on the law of God, God's hand on Ezra. Let me say we make we make much of the word of God here. Okay, if you've been around long, we make we make a big deal, a big, huge emphasis we place on the Word of God, the primacy of the Word of God. And you know this. Apparently Ezra made much of it as well, that he were to set his heart upon the Word of the God. But I want you to be sure, I want to be sure that you understand um, exactly why this is. It is because the Word of God is in black and white, God's, God's divine revelation of Himself. The word that Ezra set his heart on, the word that we week in and week out give our attention to is is the, the divine revelation of who God is. His dealings with his people, his activity throughout history, his eternal plan unfolding. But all that to say so that he can show his glory in all of that, in all that it accomplishes, it, it paints a picture for us of who he is. How we know him. Spirit's help, this is, this is how we, we nail down the God who is in heaven. This is how we, we paint a picture of Him, uh, one scholar said, in crayon, so that we can, we can see Him for who He is, as best we can in our, fallen, in our fallen humanity. The hand of the Lord was upon Ezra because Ezra's heart was set on knowing his God. In that he set his heart on the word, he was setting his heart to know his God. Do you get that? We give we give primacy and we give attention to God's word because it's how we know him, for sure. Because it's it's his revelation to us of who he is. Not man's opinion about who God is, it's God's divine revelation of who he is. Ezra had the hand of the Lord upon him because he had set his heart to know his God intimately. And uh If you walk away from Ezra chapter 7 not saying to yourself, I want that to be said of me. I want that to be the testimony of my life. Uh, I just don't know how you do that. So in chapter 7, here's what we saw. We watched God, once again, kick open, kick wide open the door for his children to return. And the story goes that it's based primarily on the man who's, it's based primarily because there's a man whose heart is set on knowing his God. Knowing the word who reveals his God. That's the, that's the emphasis. That's the impetus in the chapter. That this guy set his heart on knowing his God. And God kicks open all these doors. He makes this way. He makes great provision for the one who sets his heart on knowing his God. Now listen, we, uh, we like formulas, Even as Christians, especially as humans, but even as Christians, we, we love formulas. You know what I mean by that? We love the A plus B equals C stuff. We want Christianity to be this A plus B equals C Christianity. We're a works-oriented humanity, and, and it carries over into our Christianity even. We want God to say, you do this, and I'll do this. I'll do A, and I'll add B, God, and that most assuredly means you'll do C. Right? Right? I mean, and we want it to be that, that easy. It'd be nice, frankly, if, that, if, if it were that easy, right? I mean, it'd be nice if God said, do this, this, and this. Don't do this, this, and this. And I'll do this, this, and this, right? Unfortunately, and, and frankly, by the wisdom of God only, um, he knows that's not the best way. Instead, he makes us walk with him. He makes us, he makes us get to know him. He makes us uh, live in relationship with him. He, he makes all of our stories different. So that our lives and our stories and our testimonies aren't aren't all identical. We can't all just do A plus B and God gives us the C. In a sense, um, Christianity is not difficult, but God makes it God makes it unique in that way. That He causes us to press in closer to Him, He causes us to get to know Him better so that we so that we know when to turn left and when to turn right. We like formulas. Do we get a formula? I was asking myself for Ezra chapter eight. You know, last week we we got somewhat of a formula that Ezra set his heart on the word of the Lord. He set his heart to know his God, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. Do we do we get a formula from the example of Ezra? And, and the answer I got was this: Yeah, we do, but it may not exactly be the formula we we frankly want. It may not be the it may not be the A and the B that we Want and the sea frankly may not be the sea that we are expecting, but if there's a formula, here it is you, you give your heart completely over to God, you give your heart fully and completely over to knowing and walking with your God, and then God will undoubtedly show himself strong on your behalf if there's a formula that's it now let me let me give you a a, a note All right let me give you a, a A caveat to this. That heart, that heart that is fully given over to God, that heart that is fully given over to God will be concerned primarily with the things of God. Okay, that's got to be the case. You guess that that heart that is fully given over to God will be necessarily. Primarily concerned with the things that God is concerned about. That's what it means. To have your heart fully set on God, to know your God, walk with Him, that's essential. Therefore, making it really easy, making it really easy for God to show Himself strong on our behalf. Why? Because you're in step with what He's doing. You're in step with what He's doing. You become a part of what what He's doing in all of eternity. In humanity, we become a part of what He is doing. Uh, our grandfathers, our forefathers, used to call this a, a shift or a change in our in our unction. Some of you older folks know that word. It's a shift in our unction. My pastor growing up, he would say that the more he set his heart on God, the more he set his heart to know his God, the more his, his want to Good southern way to put it. My my want to are just changes. The things that I wanted to do before aren't the things I want to do now. As I set my heart on knowing my God and I get glimpses of, of Him in all of His glory, my want to are changes. I want to do what He wants to do. My wants begin to strangely match His. And over time I'm not doing what I'm Doing, I'm doing what God's been doing. So you give your heart over completely to God, then God will undoubtedly show Himself strong on your behalf. But you got to understand this because we, He's always going to show Himself strong in what he's, he's doing. We end up doing what He's doing. We're going to be part of His provision. But you see, some of us we want the formula to work like this. And I give my heart to God, and now God joins me in my life. That He uh, He somehow partners up with me. That it's this great union of uh, God. I'll give you my life, and now come on and link arms with me, and 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 make up for all the deficiencies in my life as I walk through this world, as I as I build my family, as I build my career, as I build my life, as I live this thing out on earth for the 80, 90 years that you might be gracious enough to give me. Come on and help me out, God. That's how we want the formula to work. I'll give God, I'll give my God, I'll give my God my heart completely. We think we're doing that. and God's part of it is, come on alongside me, God, and partner up with me and help me out where I've been stumbling. There's a, there's a poem I came across, a lady named Ruth Harms, Somewhat famous uh, Christian Christian poet, I identified with the title of her book that she put this poem in. Uh, the title of her book was "Tell Me Again, Lord, I Forget." And, uh, that's me. The title of her poem was uh, "Take Over." Listen to this. She wrote, "At first, Lord, I asked you to take sides with me. With David, the psalmist, I circled and underlined. The Lord is for me. Maintain my rights, O Lord." Let me stand above my foes. But with all my pleading, I lay drenched in darkness until, in utter confusion, I cried, Don't take sides, Lord. It's just take over. Suddenly it, was Suddenly it was morning. Paul said it like this I've been bought with a price, I'm a slave to the Lord saved me, It's no longer I that lives my life, but Christ who lives his life through me. We want a formula for God's blessing, and we want a formula for God's provision, but it's funny, we want a formula that keeps us, frankly, in charge. We want a formula that, that keeps us in charge. Preston, uh, Preston has a nephew, Preston have a nephew named Isaac, he's uh, just recently entered the Air Force Academy. And I got to thinking about this, Preston. It's sort of like uh, Ike waking up this morning at the Air Force Academy, rolling over and saying, "You know what? <laughs> I really don't want to get out of bed this morning. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna skip breakfast and skip PT and catch up with the guys later." Uh, now, those of you who are in the military, uh, Brent, does that work? Jeremy, is that, is that going to work? No, that's not going to work, right? And all of us, whether we were in the military or not, we we know enough about that 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 setting to know that that's foolishness, right? we don't get to make those kind of decisions. We don't get to just uh make uh random decisions like that anymore. We we've joined forces. We have a we have a new commander in chief. We have a new captain. We have a new leader. And it, and it just makes sense we've got to do what what's on his agenda. You you heard the old uh the old illustration, one of my favorite illustrations. I remember even from my childhood is the story of the uh the ship captain, the battleship captain, he was, uh, he was nearing land and he saw, he saw a light in the distance. So he had his, he had his radio man or his light guy. What do you call the flashlight guy that flashes the light? Uh, his signal man. He had his signal man signal to this other ship, uh, alter your course 10 degrees south. And he promptly got a signal back that says, alter your course 10 degrees north. And he kind of bowed up and said, send this one back. Alter your course. I'm a captain. He promptly gets a signal back. Alter your course. I'm a, I'm a second degree seaman. You know something something lowly. Alter your course. I'm a battleship, thinking that he's going to now overwhelm the other signal. Signalman promptly signals back. Alter your course. I'm a lighthouse. Right, and, and that's that's a great example of this. How we sometimes have dealings with God. We want God to change. We want God to adapt. We want God to come alongside of us. And He's this rock. He's this stable thing that is unchanging. And we're to shape our life around Him, not not the other way around. Paul said it like this: Second, Second Timothy two four, um, like a good soldier in active duty. He never entangles himself in the affairs of this world so as to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier in the first place. And he related that that's our position. That's our position to Christ. He's enlisted us into his army. We don't we don't get the we don't get the prerogative to roll over and say, I'm going to sleep in today. We don't, we don't get to shape. We don't get to change. We don't get to, we don't get to tell God to adjust. Jesus would put it this way. Take up your cross. That there in and of itself is a picture of caution. Listen, this is, means death to you and my life through you. And he even gives a further warning. He says, listen, now, before you take up your cross, make sure you count the cost. I thought, you know, I was thinking this morning, we got a whole bunch of people who jump into this Christianity thing thinking they're taking up their cross, but they haven't counted the cost. Meaning that they, they end up getting into this thing and then finally they look around because somebody says to them or the word conveys to them, God reveals to them that, listen, this isn't about God joining you. It's about you joining what God is doing. And That's where you find yourself being provided for. That's where you find yourself in the provision of God. That's where Ezra found himself in the provision of God because he joined up with what God was doing. There was no magic formula for Ezra to get what he wanted from God. God was doing something. And as he set his heart on God, his desires changed. His life began to mold around God. And here, here's the crux. We've got to nail this thing down. Here's the crux. If your life is still your own, okay? Your life is still your own, then you haven't aptly set your heart on the word of the Lord. You haven't aptly set your heart to know your God. As we're singing these songs, I just I tell you one day I'm just going to stand up and <laughs> I'm going to interrupt the whole thing just because I, I so want to just, just shake us as a church, frankly, sometimes. okay? Can I just, just bent my spleen a little bit here? I just want to shake us and say, do we hear in our hearts the words that we're singing? <laughs> Sin is broken. Sin is broken. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. He's stronger. He's stronger. It's written. Christ is risen. I mean, do we do we hear to the point where it actually makes any difference? Or do we come and want, wanting God to kind of shape things around us? Um, all right. I did all that preaching so that now I can teach you. Sometimes you got to preach before you can Ezra 8. Let me let me read you this. And I'll, I'll for the sake of time, and for the sake of uh, me embarrassing myself with some of these names, I'm going to skip one through 14. This genealogy here. Uh, as I told you before, we're going to come back and we're going to pick out a couple of these names later on. I want I want to show you some of the stories behind these names. But one through 14, Ezra records a genealogy. He records a, he has a list of the heads of the families that return with him. Remember, in the first return, there's 50,000 so people. In this return, you're only going to get four or 5,000. Here, he just marks the heads of those families. Many of the names match some of the names in the earlier list because they just mark them by the names of their family heads, you see? And so there were still some people under the family head left, even though some of the people under that family head may have came back in the first list. Okay, Some of you may be catching this. Others of you are like, okay. right. You're going to see some of the same names. It's not Ezra making a mistake that these guys already came back. This family already came back. No, it's still some of that family left. Some of the descendants are still left. Even at one point he says, that's the last of this family. Meaning, that's the last of, of that group. They all made it back. So he gives this list. He, he, he marks these men as those who came back with their families. Four to five thousand. Now, let's pick up in Ezra 15. I'll read the rest of the chapter. And then I want to show you just five, five things briefly. Now I assembled them, that's Ezra speaking, I assembled them, and remember this is Ezra's journal, okay, so, so grab it in that tone. Now I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava, where we camped for three days. Notice that they didn't, at the permission of the king, they didn't just jump right to it. They didn't just head out. They camped for three days, and when I observed the people and the priests, I did not find any Levites there. So I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Nathan, Jerob, uh, El-Nathan. Uh, Nathan, Zechariah, uh, Meshelon, leading men. Leading men for Jorab and Elenathan, teachers. So he sends out this delegation to go get Levites. I sent them to Idad, the leading men at the place Casaphia, and I told them what to say to Idad and his brothers, the temple servants at the place Casaphia, that is, to bring ministers to us for the house of the Lord. According to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us A man of insight, of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel, named Sherebiah, and his sons and brothers, eighteen men; and Hashabiah and Jessusiah, and the sons of Moriah, Morari. I'm sorry, with his brothers and their sons, twenty men, and two hundred twenty of the temple servants whom David and the princes had given for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because well we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. But his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Jerubiah, Hasha, Baya, and with them ten of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the utensils and the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel present there, present there had offered. Thus I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, and silver utensils worth 100 talents and 100 gold talents and 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 derricks and two utensils of fine, shiny, bronze, precious as gold. All accounts say this is about, in modern day, about $3 million worth of stuff. right here. Then I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the utensils are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord God. Fathers, Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priests, the Levites, and the heads of the fathers, the households of Israel at Jerusalem, in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites accepted and weighed out silver and gold and the utensils to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we journeyed. See, now they're just getting to go. Then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three more days. On the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phineas, And with him there were the Levites, Jezabad, the son of Jeshua, and Nodiah, the son of Benui. Everything was numbered and weighed, and all the weight was recorded at that time. The exiles who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats for a sin offering. All as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then they delivered the king's edicts to the king's satraps, and to the governors in the provinces beyond the river. And they supported the people in the house of God. All right. I want to give you just briefly five five things worth noting about this guy Ezra. No, no doubt there are more, but I want to just give you five things. Perhaps you'll discover more in your life groups or in your own rereading of this text. But I just want to give you five things that popped out to me that we we can learn from. If we want some sort of formula, right? We want some sort of formula. How do we how do we uh, end up having a having a testimony or a record of our life that, that is anywhere similar to that of Ezra and what God did through and for and with Ezra. And there's some things I think we could uh, we could draw from this. Number 1. Here's a guy. Here's a guy that, it struck me that that knows what's important. Here's a guy that knows what's important. Verse 15. Go back to verse 15. Now I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava where we camped for 3 days. He didn't set out. They didn't just take right off at the edict of the king. They go out and they camp outside of this area in Babylon where they live in. They all gather together. And Ezra does something interesting here. He gets everyone who says they're going and he looks around. And he notices something. Did did you see it? He notices that there are no what? No Levites. Now the Levites are those who God had charged and assigned to the work of the temple and to the teaching of the word of God. And so these guys, uh, to, put it, you know, to put it simply, they were, they were pretty important. They were needed. If Ezra was going to go back and reform and, and go back to the temple that was now rebuilt and begin to teach the word that he has set his heart on and reform the people with the word of God, he needs the Levites. And there are none to be found. So he, he takes the time before they ever leave. He, he does an inventory of the people and he realizes I have no Levites. But more than that, he realizes, we got to have the Levites. And it just struck me that this guy, because he knew the word of God, because he, he knew his God, he knew the plans of his God, he knew uh, the plans of the temple, he knew how it worked, he knew the job that the Levites were to do, he knew the job that God had for him to do in his return. He knew what was important. He knew he couldn't just leave without Levites. So he stopped, he took the time, and he said, listen, we've got to send some men back. And he didn't just send some guys back and say, look look for some Levites and bring them on. He said, let me tell you exactly what to say to these men. And he chose leaders, he chose leading men, he was very intentional, he knew exactly what he needed, and he took the time to make it happen. Here's a guy who knows what's important. He's not gonna. He's not gonna let let it go. He's not gonna overlook it. It was essential, and he took care of it. Number two, here's a guy that uh that knows what, or better yet, who got him this far. Here's a guy who knows what, or better yet, who got has gotten him thus far. Look at verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river. That we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us. for Our little ones and all this three million dollars worth of stuff. They spend three days and he says, you know what, we're not leaving yet. We got our Levites, we're not leaving yet. We've got to go to the God who's got us this far. We've got to go back to the God who stirred in the heart of the king to give us permission to go who provided all this, this this wealth that we're taking with us, we've got to stop before we take the first step and we've got to go back to that God. He says he declared a fast. He tells you why. That we might humble ourselves before our God to seek Him for a safe journey. Not only us, but for our little ones. Do you see His heart? Great concern here all the possessions. Again, $3 million worth they had to go. 900 miles. This will take months. This is not an easy road, and it's not a safe road. And when you got that much stuff, people are coming for it. Says something interesting here. For I was ashamed, verse 22, to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way. Because and I can just see as we're kind of just like saying, what, what, what did I do? I don't know, I don't know what, what I was thinking, but here's what I said to the king when he said we could go. I said, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So there's no way I can say to this king, can we have some protection, by the way, on our trip? Because I'm not really sure God will get us there safely with all this stuff, with our little children and all that. And he just kind of I just imagine he's just saying, "I can't go back to the king and ask for this, but this is a dangerous, long trip. We've got our, we've got our children with us. We've got millions of dollars worth of, worth of gifts for the temple. We've just got to trust our God." And he says, "Before we take another step, let's just stay right here and let's express to God through fasting that this is what this is. Let's express to God our serious commitment and trust in him. Let's express to God our weakness. You See, this guy realized who got him this far. And in turn, he realized who hadn't got him this far. There's nothing about him. So he goes back here at a point of what some might call weakness. But I just like to call it honesty. Ezra says, you know what? I'm not going to ask the king for this. Let's teach our God. He is who he said he was. Let's trust him. And in our weakness, let's just stop and pray and tell God how serious we are about our committedness to him and our trust in him. Let's expose our weakness to God. Let's, let's, let's fast before him. and We'll trust him. Later on down in verse 31, it says, Then we journeyed from the river, on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem and the hand of our God was over us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Here's a guy who knows who's gotten him this far, and he goes back to the one, who's gotten him to where he is before he takes a whole other step. Number three, uh, this guy knows this guy knows, you get the impression, that this thing is really bigger. The fact that uh, he wouldn't go back to the king and ask for protection. Uh, incidentally, the very thing that Nehemiah will do in Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah gets sort of the same storyline where he gets to go back and he gets to rebuild the wall around the city. And he's going to take advantage of the king's protection. And nowhere in the story do you get the idea that either one of them were wrong. Nowhere in Nehemiah do you get the idea that Nehemiah was wrong for asking but you get the picture that Ezra, as he walked with God, as he had his had his life and his heart and his mind, his everything set on the word of God, on knowing his God, on trusting his God. You get the idea that uh he he had some he had some inclination towards towards knowing that this thing that they were doing was bigger than just him. And just bigger than these people. If not, if not, he would have I believe, gone right back to the king and said, Listen, we need your protection. We need your protection. Can, you, can you give us, you've given us all this other stuff? And the king would probably have done it, just like he does it for Nehemiah. But here's what I mean by he had, he had, a, he had an understanding that this was probably bigger than him. Is that he didn't, well, he didn't, uh, he wasn't concerned with his his own protection as much as he was the glory of God. See, because in his heart, to go back to the king was to say to the king, that the God who I said could get me there can't actually get me there. Now, for his own protection, for his own, you know, for his own safety's sake, for the sake of his children, etc., you go back to the king and you get the protection. When in doubt, you take the protection. But he doesn't go that route. And you get the idea that, that Ezra against his flesh said, you know what? I'll, I'll, not, I'll not risk lowering. The glory or the honor or the power of our God in the eyes of this king for the sake of my own good. You get that? He he knew this was bigger. He made decisions not based on his own good, but the glory of God. He made decisions not based on God shaping things around him, but him shaping his life around God. There was something bigger at stake. And instead of taking what would be best for him. He said, let's go with what's best for God's glory. All right, let me go. Number four. This guy knows what, uh, what it means when we say that small things make a big difference. I'll not read back through them, but we went through. Uh, he's very detail-oriented, very thorough here. He goes through, and all these gifts, all these gifts that those who did not return to Israel, those Jews who have not returned, they gave gifts. The king, the, the, the pagan government, they gave them gifts. Lavishly gave them things to take back to the temple. In Ezra journals here, he says, every piece he delegates to different guys, to different Levites. He says, you're in charge of this. Count it out, weighed it to them. said, you're in charge of this. When we get there, we're going to recount it, we're going to reweigh it. And in front of the proper authorities, we're going to deposit it so that everybody knows everything's above board. And he documents all this, and he checks every every piece. You get the idea that he understands that even these small things, I mean, it's $3 million worth of stuff, you know. Surely, if we get the majority of it there, you know, that would be good enough. Like Daniel, faithful to the one who gave him the permission to go, faithful to the one he was under here on earth. He's not going to drop a single single piece he's not going to drop the ball in any place he takes it all he's faithful in the little things he does exactly what he said he's going to do at the end of the chapter you see that every piece is weighed out and it's deposited and he sends word back to the king it's here just as i said it would be let me give you the last one finally he knows how to come full circle back to god look at the end of uh, chapter 8 verse 35 after everything was weighed out and numbered, verse 34, and all the weight was recorded at the time, here's what they do. Here's what they do. They come full circle back to the God who stirred in the heart of the king that got them out in the first place. They come back to the God, the exiles who had come from captivity. They offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel. Ninety-six rams, seventy-six lambs, twelve male goats for a sin offering. All as a burnt offering to the Lord. They went back and they paused to worship. They paused to worship. Many of us at this point, we kind of, we kind of wander off from God. We get, it, we get this blessing, provision for God, and then we take advantage of it and we shoot off, and we never, we never kind of return back to the God who gave us what He gave us in the beginning. That came full circle. Number one, he's a guy who knows what's important. Are God's here's the questions for us now. He's a guy who knows what's important. Are God's priorities your priorities? Or do we skip some of them? Number two, he's, he's a guy that knows who's gotten him this far. He also knows who, who himself didn't get him your dependence on God, is it fickle or is it faithful? Is your dependence on God, is it fickle or is it faithful? Number three, this guy knows that this thing, this walk with God is bigger than him. Are your decisions based on God's glory or your good? Are your decisions based on God's glory or are they based on your good? Number four, he knows that small things make big differences. Can you be trusted to the penny? Can you be trusted to the T. Finally he knows how to come full circle back to God. Does God have your heart from beginning to end? Or do we get what we want from God and then kind of shoot off our own? Now I don't I don't know about formulas, but if you start to see some of these traits Find in the life of Ezra, if you start to see some of these traits in your life, oh, I just bet that it'll be said of you in increasing degree that the hand of your God is upon you. Next week, as we get into chapters 9 and 10, or in the coming weeks, it's interesting what we're seeing. Based on chapters 7 and 8. Let me tell you, let me give you a glimpse of what happens next by way of showing you the importance of what we've seen in chapter 7 and 8. What happens next is this. Sin is confronted. There's confession made. There is repentance. There is reconciliation with God. In a word, there, there's this reformation that comes, I believe, from what we've seen in chapter 7 and 8 from the faithfulness from a man setting his heart on God from these character traits that we see obvious in his life the result of this we're going to see in the rest of the book of Ezra we're going to see sin confronted we're going to see confession we're going to see repentance we're going to see reconciliation with God we're going to see a revival we're going to see a reformation in the land but not without chapter 7 and 8 not without guys like Ezra not without guys so what do we do? We keep setting our heart on God through his word. He'll tweak our want to her. He will most assuredly provide for those who find themselves caught up in his kingdom's workings. Can I give you one more poem? This is uh, this is uh, well it should be it should be our prayer. It's called Christ's bondservant. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer thee. I sink in life's arms, and by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. My heart is weak and poor, it is until my master finds. Has no spring of action, sure it varies with the wind, it cannot freely move till thou hast brought its chain and slave it with thy matchless love, and deathless it shall reign. My power is faint and low, till I have learned to serve. it wants the needed fire to glow, it wants the breeze to nerve, it cannot drive the world until itself be driven, its flag can only be unfurled when thou shalt breathe. My will is not my own, till thou hast made it thine. If it would reach a monarch's throne, it must its crown design. It only stands unbent amid the clashing strife. When on thy bosom it has leant and found in thee,